It's good to be with you all this morning. I don't trust that thing. So. Um, hey, I see uh, some of the college students are making their way back. Welcome. Uh, glad to have you. Um, uh, if you are new to CCF, then we are, we'd love to get to meet you. Uh, you can ask any of our members for information. You can see me, Gabe, Brandon after service. We would love to get to know you. Uh, we also have to tell you more about that. We want to really help to serve and care for you while you're here, while you're a student and uh, make sure that you have a church family, a home that you are able to connect with and be plugged into, be known and to know. Uh, we are in our second week of our study in the Old Testament prophet, the minor prophet, Amos. And Amos is in the Old Testament near the kind of the middle of your Bible. If you would grab your Bible and turn there. If you're new to the Bible, you can ask somebody around you. Don't be afraid or ashamed of that. But Amos chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 2. So we're going to finish out chapter 1, and then we're going to go through the first three verses of chapter 2. Two. So Amos 1, 2 through 2, 3 will be our text today. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to ask God for his help as we study his word. Amos chapter 1, verse 2 says, And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire, a fire upon the house of Hazel. And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they may, might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbi and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, 
And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this time that we get to spend in your word. We thank you, God, that you've given us instruction. You've given us uh, history even to look at, real people, real situations. And Lord, help us to see what you would have us to see through this text, why it's included in sacred writings of Scripture. Father, we need your help. I need your help now, Lord. So we ask you, God, to to give us, to help us. So, Father, what we know not, would you teach us, and what we are not, would you make us, and what we have not, would you give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, and God's people said. Have you ever wondered what God thinks about the acts of evil in the world? Uh, The acts of evil around you, the things that you see on the news, the things that happen to those that maybe you don't know, maybe personally. You ever thought about those acts that cause pain and suffering in this world? If you ever thought about that, then uh, you're not alone. In the year 2000, Barna conducted a nationwide study that included the question, if you could ask God only one question, and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The most common response that was offered was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is there pain and suffering? And unfortunately, many people let the thought, if God is so good, And why does bad things happen, hinder them, right? Why is there pain and suffering in the world if there is this great God that is so good? And oftentimes they hinder their relationship with him on the preface of that question. Many have a hard time reconciling the idea that there is a God who is good, but he seemingly sits back and just allows this stuff to go down, and he doesn't care. The watching world wants to know, right? Where's your God? Where is your God here? Where is your God, and what is he doing? Will your God respond, right? Will your God respond to all these acts of evil committed by humanity? You know, does God even care? Today, by God's grace, uh, we get to see that God does indeed care. He cares about the world. We see God's response to the pagan nations of Amos' day. Now, certainly the primary audience of Amos's prophecy is God's chosen people, the Israelites, okay? He's, he, we'll see that. They, they receive the most extensive treatment of instruction, correction, and judgment in the book. But the Gentile nations surrounding Israel are not exempt from the negative consequences for their actions. They will indeed be judged. See, by addressing The Gentile nations first, Amos reveals that God sovereignly oversees and judges all of humanity. He judges all of humanity. God will indeed judge those who rebel against his commandments. God will indeed judge those who deny him. God will indeed judge those who commit heinous acts against other people. All of humanity will be judged by God. I want you to feel the gravity of that for a moment. All of humanity. And some may ask, well, what about those who do not 
have or know God's word. Those who do not know his commandments. What about those who have never heard the good news of salvation, of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about those people? Scripture speaks to this. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans. Uh, If you've got your Bible, you can turn there quickly. Romans chapter 1, and I'll read 18 through 20. You can write it down. You can read it later. You can look there now. For the wrath of God, the judgment, the wrath, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, that means they hold down, they, they, they ignore, pretend like it's not there, the truth. Verse 19, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because guess what? God has shown it to them. Verse 20, it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's what Paul says. They are without excuse. The point here is that anyone living in God's creation has enough evidence that there is a God. And that God demands and deserves worship. There is God. And look, God doesn't demand worship out of his need for worship. Rather, God's demand for worship is out of his love for us. It's an important uh, truth to reconcile in your mind. See, we were made by God for God. We were made by God. None of you made yourself. For God. We're made for Him. And we find our truest purpose and our greatest joy when we enjoy the one who created us. When we worship the one who created us. See, He is the giver of all things, He's the giver of life, He's the sustainer of all things. And as we just confessed in our corporate confession, Paul goes on in Romans to talk about the way that humanity often exchanges. Right? We exchange the, the creator for the creation. We look at the things we get rather than giving praise to the one who gave it to us. We worship creation. And that's humanity. We do that. Humanity is without excuse, Paul tells the Romans. Now, why is this important to remember as we look at this text today? And as we even as we study Amos and look at the Old Testament, right? See, when we look at the, God's judgment in the Old Testament against uh, these non-covenant people, it should compel us to evangelize. Okay, it should compel us to evangelize. See, we are New Testament Christians, okay? We're, we're New Testament Christians. We're under the new covenant with the knowledge of the revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that there is salvation through Christ. There is a new covenant. And we have a mandate from a Savior who says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go. Go. Make disciples, teach them, preach the gospel, share the good news of Christ, and call sinners to repentance. There's good news. So while we look at this prophecy that is historically written to a specific people, to some specific sins of those people, 
we need to remember that all of the prophets, right? So all of the prophets generally kind of give us a three-part structure. Okay, there's three major parts to all the prophets. There's some nuance in there. But basically we see judgment for sin, and that's just general, right? All of humanity. There's judgment for sin. There's mercy for sinners. Praise God. Everyone should say amen. Thank you. And there's restoration for God's people. And that's the message we need to see here. God indeed judges all of humanity for their sins. And there is indeed mercy for sinners who would repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those who do repent, there is a promise of restoration for all of eternity. Praise be to God. Now let's look at this judgment on Israel's neighbors and make some observations that I think will be very helpful for us today. Now it's important to note that these judgment passages follow a distinct um, geographical pattern. I actually have a map uh, I want to show you if you can see it. You kind of see here uh, how this goes. And I think it's important to look at this to, to visualize this kind of pattern of what's going on here on the judgment. I know in the back you might not be able to see it. The X's are where the places are. But uh, first we're going to read about Damascus, which is located at the northeast of Canaan. Uh, then we're going to read about Gaza, right, that's located to the southwest of Israel. And then we're going to, uh, and Gaza would kind of be the Philistines. You can think about them there. Then we're going to see Tyre, which is the northwest of Israel. Then you've got Edom in the southeast. Then you've got Ammon and Moab in the central east. And then lastly, we will look at next week, we'll see the judgment against Judah in the south and then Israel in the north. But what's important to see here is kind of the how God right now, how the judgment is going around God's chosen people. It's almost as if he's, he's squeezing in on them. One commentator writes, this pattern provides a crescendo effect as God's judgment encircles the promised land before climaxing with the nation of Israel. Although God is concerned with the nations surrounding Israel, his main objective here is to hone in on his people and call them back to the fold. Call them to repentance. It's as if he kind of works his way around, even enticing them, right? The Israelites to look outward. Like, look at what, yeah, look at what they're doing. And what that does, it even strengthens the indictment on themselves, I mean, you can kind of picture the scene that's about to unfold here, right? You've got this foreigner, Amos. We talked about that last week. He's a foreigner coming to, to speak this prophecy of judgment. But he starts with a judgment for Israel's neighbors and the enemies. So you imagine kind of what the initial thought here was, right? Like, man, this is a prophet we can listen to. We like this guy. He's talking about everyone else. Yeah, man. Yeah, and this is a preacher that we can, we, we like this guy, makes us feel good. He talks about everyone else, never calls us out on our own sin. We like this. We enjoy it. You know, it's been said many times, right? An enemy of an enemy is my friend. An enemy of an enemy is, is, a, is a friend of mine. And it's far too easy for us to join others in disparaging those around us. Especially when the one who is disparaged is someone we don't like. We start to mumble and gossip and talk about those, those sins, those people. And we need to pause and take note here that God's focus and attention in matters of godliness and the pursuit of holiness is most concerned with his people. Christians, the church. We need to remember that it is the church who is the bride of Christ. God's people, saved, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. 
we are being prepared for presentation to him. Remember Paul's instruction to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives. It's a reminder for all of the husbands in here. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he give himself up for her? We see in verse 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that, verse 27, so that in order to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. So let me encourage us, for you to call yourselves believers, Christians in here today, and let us be a people who first and foremost look here individually. Take up the matters of our own hearts. How can I, right, here's a question we need to be asked, how can I grow in godliness? How am I being sanctified, renewed, made new in the renewal of my mind, being made more in the image of Christ. And then corporately, right, how can our local body, how can we grow in godliness? How are we as a people to grow? Iron sharpening iron, discipleship. The Titus 2 principles we see, the older women teaching the younger, growing in godliness, strengthening one another. This should be our first call before we look out to the sins of others. And that's not to say that we should not call others to repentance. I believe we should be aware and on guard and boldly speaking the truth in the face of adversity. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. But while we do, let us be sure that we ourselves are walking in a manner worthy of the call into which we have been called. Amen? With that in mind, let's consider our text real quick. Look at verse 2. Back in Amos here. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So here we see this picture of God roaring as a lion. Roaring. The image is used later in uh, the book in chapter 3. It's also used by the prophets Jeremiah, Hosea, Isaiah, and Joel. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard a lion roar. I might have maybe heard once or twice in a zoo or something. But the people hearing Amos' words here, like, they would be very familiar with the roar of a lion. Lions were common in that time. It would be very aware of the, the power, the ferocity of the lion, and the intensity of the roar. So this would have meant something to them. They would have heard this, and they would have had this uh, picture, and it would have stirred up some feelings in them from experiences of hearing it before. Now, lions roar for various reasons, and uh, this is something that is really interesting, right? So, you know, experts say that uh, lions, they roar to kind of communicate to one another. Uh, they, they do it to locate one another. A lot of times they, um, they'll roar at nighttime, and they'll do it to kind of because they can't see one another, so they'll roar. It's also a way to show off their power, dominance among other lions, but one of the reasons that I found most intriguing is the way lions roar as warning signs to the pride of approaching danger. In other words, the, the lion will, will roar. He'll, he'll roar to scare anything off that may come in and threaten the family. His pride, he keeps his family safe. He roars as a sign of protection, sign of warning, keeping them from danger, 
fighting off anything that may attempt to compromise the integrity of those he loves. See, we see the use of the divine name LORD here in all caps, okay? Uh, That means Yahweh. And this is the use of, or this is the covenantal name of God. And it's significant here. Our commentator Ray Bealey writes, His, meaning God's judgments, are in the interest of his people. Remember the map we looked at and how he's honing in there. I quote, the downfall of the heathen nations is in some way connected with the deliverance of Israel. Salvation and judgment may be two sides of the same act. As in the case of the flood, Remember the flood of Noah, which was an act of judgment upon the godless and a deliverance for who? The family of Noah, God's elect remnant, end quote, right? He saves the people. He destroys, but he saves. See, we see that the lion roars from Jerusalem here. He utters from Zion, roars from Zion, utters from Jerusalem, and that was the dwelling place of the Lord among his people and where God had instructed the Israelites to offer sacrifices to their covenant Lord. This picture is kind of painted, right, of this lion who's roaring and he's making a claim on his territory, on his pride, his people, saying there's danger coming. There's danger coming. Return to me. Return. Turn back for protection. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Or are you where you're supposed to be? Is your, is your heart where it's supposed to be? It's a message for us all today. We read that caramel will wither. It's translated just kind of dried up. Right, it's a drought that's going to happen. It says the pastures of the shepherd will mourn because of their sorrow over the drought. You're going to see this, this, this idea that uh, it shows us that God's judgment is universal and it's devastating. He is sovereign over all of creation. God of the Bible has the power to do whatever he wants. He has the power over humanity, right? Proverbs 21, 1 tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21, 1, one of my favorite verses just to remind me of God's power and sovereignty. Like water, grab water in your hand, turn it wherever he wills. We see in Isaiah 66, 1, God has power over creation. He is sovereign over All things, thus says the Lord, Isaiah says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Probably all familiar with that. What is the house that you would build for me, God says? And what is the place of my rest? Brothers and sisters, if your God is not the sovereign creator and sustainer over everything in existence, your God is not the God of the Bible. He is sovereign. He is king. He's in control. So Amos here has presented God as this most powerful, ferocious, roaring lion, roaring from Zion, speaking from Jerusalem. And then he gets to the judgment on these Gentile nations. And each of these judgments follows the same basic pattern. Here's how it goes down. It says, this is what the Lord says, right? So look at verse 3, thus says the Lord. So he says, hey, this is what God is saying to us, to you. Um, this was a common phrase in prophetic literature. If you're familiar, you've, you've seen this repeated before each pattern of judgment. Uh, And then he goes on to say, for three sins of, and then whatever the nation is, and even four, um, I will not turn back my wrath. He says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, this isn't uh, specific numbers of sins. It would just mean many sins, sin after sin after sin. It's not three plus four, seven. It's, 
is, it just means he's continuing. You, you continue to sin. So because you continue to sin, I will not revoke my judgment. And then it says, because, right, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So we see this because and then whatever they've done, the sin that they've committed, that's why the judgment is it's very specific here. And then he continues and he says, I will send fire upon whatever the nation is. And then it always ends with says the Lord. So it begins, thus says the Lord, ends with says the Lord. These are the words of God to these people. There are a few minor differences in these first six, but for the most part, that is the structure we see played out. I want you to notice too, if you're taking notes, notice that all of these judgments towards Israel's neighbors are short and to the point. They're short and to the point, and once again, we see God's objective to speak to his people and call them to repentance. Now, one of the things that we also need to take note of is it's common between the sins of these Gentile nations is they were committing sins against others. They were committing sins against other people. They were acting out in a brutal and hostile way towards humanity. So listen, here's what we're going to see in Amos as we study this for the next Uh, as long as the Lord wills for the next uh, weeks. We'll see that Amos, in Amos, we'll see that God does indeed care about justice. God cares about justice. God cares about how we treat those around us. God indeed cares about the mistreatment and exploitation of other people and the other image bearers. It's a biblical principle. Uh, in the New Testament, right, we're told to love our church, love our families, uh, love our um, neighbors, our enemies even. Covers all the bases, right? We're, we're to be people of love. Covers everyone. But what we will see is we are called to do justice God's way on God's terms. And God's definition of justice is often different than the definition of justice that the world would lend us to believe. And here we see the judgment on these nations for their barbaric practices. They were wicked. Three through five, right? We just read a little bit through it. I'm just going to, what we'll do is just walk through each kind of section. not going to read every verse, but we'll just talk about what's going on there. It's a lot of text. Um, So we're just going to walk through and kind of see the overview of what's happening here. I'll give you a little bit of specifics, but, hey, I encourage you to read through some of the historical. Uh, You read through 2 Kings and uh, and the Chronicles. You can read some of the different things that are going on in these different nations. It's a really good study. But in 3 through 5, we see that Damascus is being punished because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now, these threshing sleds were like these uh, sled-like wooden devices that had stones or glass under them, and they would be pulled to separate grain. And so apparently these people were, were using this to uh, persecute and to uh, torture their enemies. We see some awful brutality here. In 2 Kings, we read that Hazael had conquered Gilead, but apparently he had gone far beyond what was necessary, even in wartime mentality. Right? We see a lot of wars, there's a lot of things, and that's a different sermon for a different day, but there are times that God called his people to war, to, to do things, to act. But here we see that this man had, had gone above and beyond. So Amos says, Hey, because of your evil acts, guess what? Judgment is coming. He goes on to say, God will remove the gate bar. You can read that right there in verse 5. This basically means I'm going to remove my protection from you. I will remove the gate. We read in verse 5 specifically that the people of Syria will go into exile to Kir, which was the place of origin for the Syrians. 
But their return back there wasn't going to be a warm welcome. They would return as exiles and captives. That's how God sows his judgment. Verses 6 through 8, we read about the judgment on Gaza in verses 6 through 8. Uh, Gaza was an important city of the Philistines. Think about David and Goliath. You're probably familiar with the Philistines, right? Goliath was a mighty Philistine warrior. Think of Samson. He, he fought against the, the uh, Philistines as many times. There, the Philistines were kind of a, a, a thorn in the side of the Israelites, right? They fought for centuries, And here, Gaza likely represents the entire Philistine people. God rebukes the Philistines for exiling a whole people. They deliver them to Edom in verse 6, you can see. He says they carried into exile a whole people. They delivered them up to Edom. Now, we don't know the actual historical event that's being referred to to here, but nevertheless, what we see is that the text explains that the Philistines defeated a group of people and carried them to be enslaved to the Edomites. And so God says, I'm going to judge you for that. You, You continue in your sin, and he says, therefore, fire will be sent. It shall devour The strongholds. There in the latter part of verse 8 we read, if you look there, it says, The remnant of the Philistines shall perish. This is to say that the punishment against these people will be so severe that none of them will be left alive. There will be no remnant. There will be nothing left. God will judge. And the irony is, unmistakable, right? The Philistines have conquered a group of people, then gave them up to another people, sold them into slavery, and therefore the Lord will completely destroy them. The lesson is clear, right? We will reap what we sow. Let that be a reminder to us. Once again here, the crime is a crime of inhumanity. They have sinned against others, and they will be held accountable for that sin. 9 through 10, we read of the judgment on Tyre, and the charges against Tyre are the same crime as that of Gaza. They delivered up a whole people to Edom. But verse 9 adds something here. It says, they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. This covenant was perhaps a treaty with a related people, right? Hence the word uh, brotherhood. Or it may refer to a a treaty that maybe was uh, so close and so uh, tightly knitted together that it was a familial uh, reference of saying, hey, now you're in a brotherhood. Whatever the case, Tyre broke this covenant. They betrayed these people. And they did it to gain financial or political position. Essentially, they betrayed the people they were in a family agreement with, gave them up, stabbed them in the back, turned their back on them. God says, I will judge them accordingly. Verses 11 and 12, Edom now receives some attention. And apparently, according to the verses above, they had become deplorable people who engaged in a lot of slave trading. The Edomites were descended from Esau, Jacob and Esau. So they should have been at peace with Israel, but that was clearly not the case here. It says that Edom is judged because they pursued his brother with the sword. The brutality of the Edomites in this endeavor is highlighted here, right? Uh, Read here with me. It it says that they cast off all pity. The latter part of verse 11. It says his anger tore perpetually. It says he kept his wrath forever. 
Let this be a reminder to us, right? Harboring anger, harboring bitterness towards others has drastic consequences. It will show itself. It will come to light in one way or the other. If you go break down mentally or you'll lash out and act out towards that one or someone else. We see that this ruthless attitude of Edom here, right? It was toward his brother and it was fueled by utter hatred. He hated them. While Amos does not name the nation on the receiving end of this persecutions, the Israelites were likely the object of Edom's fury. We can take that from other historical writings. Israel and Edom are called brothers in Genesis 25, and then historical animosity between the descendants of Jacob, right, Israel, and the descendants of Esau, Edom, is well attested. And here we see the consequences. The consequences of Edom's hostility towards humanity will be God sending fire to devour them. He says, I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. God's not playing around with this. He says, this is serious. I take it serious. I take my law, my commandments. I take them serious, and everyone will be held accountable. In 13 through 2-3, we read of Ammon and Moab. Now, Ammon and Moab, they, they uh, originated from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters mentioned in Genesis 19, 36 through 38. It reads, thus both the daughters of Lot, if you remember the story of Abram and Lot, they became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So we see this Moabite people. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So we see these two people groups that are formed from this sin. It says that we read here that their sins is that they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they may enlarge their border. They were sick. They were under the judgment of Yahweh here because these soldiers brutally attacked and destroyed anything in their way. They killed pregnant women, unborn babies, all who lived in Gilead. This brutal slaughter, right, it terrorized, it decimated those whom they attacked. And it says here that the Ammonites, they did this to enlarge their borders. To gain what? Some land? Some material wealth? How often do we forsake the needs of others to enhance our material growth? How often? It says that they enlarged them to the west. Then in verses 14 and 15, it says, I, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbi, and hand, it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together. This description points to the judgment's destructive nature. It will be an unstoppable storm be something that will come through and wipe out the king and his princes and will send them to exile. This vision of a tempest and whirlwind appeared to allude to the presence of God himself in this judgment. God is there. He's present in their judgment. And here we see God's presence as further evidence and function as God is the judge the sovereign king over everything. The Moabites have engaged in heinous acts towards others as well, and they too will be judged. Verse 1 of chapter 2 reads, 
He burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, we don't know the exact details here, but we know that this was an act of desecration. And because of this heinous act, we are told in verse 2 that the people of Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And this tells us that their destruction will take place in a battle. Be slaughtered themselves. And their ruler will be cut off and their princes killed by God himself. He says, I will cut off the ruler. I will do it. He says, this is my judgment. The language here once again emphasizes Yahweh's sovereignty as he will personally administer the punishment. Now, that's a lot to take in, right? I encourage you to read it again this afternoon, spend some time this week. But as we close, I just want to give us three quick observations that I think is to be learned from this section of Scripture, okay? One, our God is a God who cares. I said that in the beginning. I'll say it again now. That is important to remember. I mean, here we see God's active judgment against evil. Against the nations who would promote these atrocities against image bearers of God. We see that God indeed cares deeply about the created world. He cares about injustice. He cares about sins against humanity. You know, for for those who've had horrible things happen to them, maybe to your own personal life or maybe to someone that you know, maybe you're burdened by the things that you see in the news and around you. God cares about those things. God cares. Second, we need to remember here is that there will be judgment for the sins of the world. There indeed will be judgment, all the sins of the world. See, God would not be God if he didn't judge sin. He wouldn't be God. He would go against his own character, which God will not do. Scripture says what? The wages of sin is death, meaning every single sin, not This is the big ones. But the wages of any sin is death. It declares us guilty before a holy creator God. So those that do not acknowledge this God, do not acknowledge their sin will be judged. This finally points to three encouragement for my brothers and sisters who have faith in Christ, those who call themselves Christians Christians, you can believe that judgment is finished on the cross of Calvary. It is finished. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, (laughs) praise God, he made him who knew no sin so that in he, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. It is good news. Man, for all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their substitute and follow him as Lord, we can declare it is finished. Judgment has taken place. Judgment is done all on account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, he did what you couldn't do, lived the perfect life. He dies the death you deserve. And he rose again, declaring victory. Scripture tells us that he will come again, right? He's going to come again and for the final judgment himself, judging the living and the dead. But those that are his are safe and secure forever. And church, while we wait for his return, let us be a people who grow in godliness individually 
and corporately so that we can faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Leave us with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Remember that. Let us be a people who strive by the power of the Spirit to grow in our understanding, to love God for us displayed on the cross and displayed daily. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wondrous work of salvation. And Father, as we uh, seek to understand uh, the evil and atrocities that we even see today in our world and we read in history and we know that things are not how we would like and that God, you care and you're burdened as well. Lord, help us to be a people who grow in holiness, grow in our sanctification, encouraging one another, spurring one another along, discipling one another through study of your word, through encouragement. Let us be a people that quickly forgive and never harbor bitterness, especially to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, as we continue to grow in our understanding of what you wrote, what you spoke through Amos, God, would you do a work in us? Would you change us? Would you help us to leave here different even today than we walked in? By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name.